Welcome to Creative on Purpose Live. These discussions are about how to discover, develop, and deliver endeavors that make a difference. Step into possibility with integrity and intention. It's time to be creative on purpose. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm your host, Scott Perry, best-selling author of Endeavor and founder of Creative on Purpose. Learn more about me and my work at BeCreativeOnPurpose.com. Let's meet today's guest. Chip Conley, welcome to the broadcast. Please tell our viewers who you are, what you're up to these days, and where we can connect with you to learn more. Well, it's great to be with you, Scott. Thank you. Um, my history is I've basically been lucky enough to disrupt my favorite industry twice, <laughs> the hospitality industry. First as a boutique hotelier, uh, as a youngster in my mid-20s, uh, creating one of the first boutique hotel companies called Joie de Vivre, uh, which means joy of life in French. Did that for 24 years and then uh, sold it almost 10 years ago. And a couple of years later, was approached by the three founders of Airbnb with their home, starting, home sharing startup. And I've spent the last six and a half years helping them guide their rocket ship. Um, I, you can learn more about me at chipconley.com. Conley spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y. And at that website, you'll learn more about my five books, uh, as well as our Modern Elder Academy, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Um, which is the world's first midlife wisdom school. Yeah, so I, that is the the piece that I'm most ex, uh, excited to talk about. But I, what I'm also really interested in, because um, it's part of my story on a, a much less public uh, playing field, but I mean, you've really, you are doing something currently that is very, very different from what you had been doing for a lot of your working life. And I'm just curious to have you describe or unpack or maybe look back and, and see if you, you know, see, um, did you ever see the Modern Elder Academy coming? And at what point did you realize that you were doing something new and, and not no longer being the hotelier that you had been? Yes, I saw, I saw the Modern Elder Academy coming and I ran the opposite direction. <laughs> the word elder scared me initially, um, but let me, let me give you some background. So I, yes, I was, they called me back in the early days of when I started Joie de the boy wonder, because I was a 26-year-old CEO. Um, so I knew what it was like to be, you know, sort of the, the young entrepreneur with all the bravado trying to build a business. Um, and then I knew that again, you know, half a, half a lifetime later when I was 52, helping the founders of Airbnb. That's when I, they first started to call me the modern elder, um, they being Joe Gebbia, one of the co-founders. Uh, is the first person about, about two years into it. He said, you know what? You're sort of like our own internal modern elder. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Should I own that phrase or not? And I decided I would um, because actually elder is a relative term. Elderly is often your last 10 years of your life. And because longevity has made such huge progress in Western society over the last 100 years, um, longevity means that we're not, you know, we may live toward 95, so you may not actually be elderly until you're 85 years old. Mm -hmm. So, what is this period of time from, you know, midlife till when you're elderly? And that, to me, it's the start of elderhood, just like you move from childhood to adulthood, you move from adulthood to elderhood. Now, if you are in an environment like I've been in, which is I am twice the age of the average employee at Airbnb the fact that you're an elder is much more obvious mm -hmm. because there's on average two generations separating, separating me uh, and the people I'm working with. Um, but for many people, uh, they may be an elder and they may even have a boss that's younger than them. 40% of us 
in the U.S. today have a boss that's younger than us. So there's a growing, uh, I think there's a growing interest in how do we cultivate and harvest wisdom in organizations just like we cultivate and harvest innovation. Um, and I think innovation and wisdom are not diametrically opposed to each other. In fact, uh, having young, youthful brilliance matched with the experience and good judgment and unvarnished insight of somebody who's been around a while is a beautiful combination. And frankly, I think that's part of what made my time at Airbnb successful because I was uh, both curious and wise. Oh, I love it. it. It's just interesting to me that your initial um, instinct was to run away from this term, modern elder, because uh, our mutual friend Seth Godin often talks about how fear is often a compass that's actually pointing us in the direction that we really need to be going. Um, so did you go ahead? Yes. Yeah, I mean, and Seth, uh, Seth and I went to business school together and the first book that either one of us ever wrote, we wrote together when we were in our second year of business school. Um, and he's a wise, he's a wise, he's a wise guy. He's a wise, <laughs> he's become a wise elder. Um, yeah. I think that generally when we see something in someone else that that we don't like, we react to. It often has something to do with something we we are having to do with in our own life. Mm -hmm. And um, I have seen uh, people over the last ten years who are at my age. I'm 58, who are struggling with uh, what does it mean to be irrelevant at a at a period of, in your life where you know you're going to live a lot longer, but it seems like power is moving a lot younger. And so there are a lot of different ways you can actually try to solve for that. Um, sometimes people use Botox in the face as one of the solutions, um, or they work out endlessly because they want to make sure that that beautiful body they had in their 20s and 30s is still being preserved in their 50s and their 60s. I think all that's great. That's fine. But if you actually want to spend the rest of your life playing on the playing field of youth, which is what you grew up with, um, you are doing what Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, would talk, said is you're living the afternoon of your life um, exactly like you did the morning, which is probably not a, not a, not a smart idea or a wise idea. Um, so I did initially have some challenges with the idea of being thought of as an elder because I, I wasn't really ready to be put out to pasture. Mm -hmm. But there is some societal narrative that, I, you know, with my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, that I've tried to address which is a couple of things in, in particular. Number one is uh, we somehow think that the second half of our life or the midlife period and beyond is a terrible period of our life. But there's a famous set of uh, studies called, uh, around the U-curve of happiness, which shows quite conclusively across the whole globe that generally people um, go from age 25 to about age 45 on a long, slow decline of happiness and life satisfaction. And around 45 to 47, or 50, it actually sort of bottoms out and it gets better. And generally people in their 50s are happier than the 40s, 60s happier than the 50s, 70s happier than the 60s. So the societal narrative that somehow, you know, after 40 or 45, it's just all downhill and there's nothing left to look forward to does not match people's personal set of um, life satisfaction. Uh, and yes, a lot of that sometimes happens in mid forties, when people go through a bit of a crisis, midlife crisis, or a midlife a challenge, and uh, Brene Brown calls it the midlife unraveling, 
Um, to me, it's about the, you know, at some point you have to just unload all, all of what you've accumulated stuff, responsibilities, et cetera. And then it's, you go through the editing process of the second half of your life. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, I just, so many great, um, things to, to pull on there. I mean, and, and I, I listened to your, your, you read the book to me in audiobook, and then I bought the book and so I could mark it up and highlight it. You and I share a fondness for um, quotations. And um, one of those quotations was about wisdom kind of being a, a process of subtraction and, and learning is a process of addition. And mm -hmm. one of the things that seems to be um, a, a, something I'm pulling up from what you're saying is it's, it's in our elderhood or uh, as we're, we're entering this period, that we can start to be more intentional about choosing the things that we're going to hold on to and continue to do or the things that we're going to let go of. And, and the other thing that you're saying that's, I think, really important is around the idea of agency and storytelling. So cult, society tells us a story about what it means to be 50 plus, 60 plus, 70 plus. Right. But we also have the ability to choose our own story. And if and, you know, I, I like to say, choose your story, choose your future. You don't have to buy into what society is saying. You can decide to construct your own narrative and frame it in a way that makes the second act or third act of your life a, a very joyful and productive one. And you are providing uh, a place where people can go and sort of make some decisions and, and start to craft the story of their second or third act. Tell us a little bit about the Modern Elder Academy. Yeah, so the Modern Elder Academy sprouted out of my process of writing the book. Um, <clears throat> as I was interviewing a lot of people in middle age, what I was seeing and hearing over and over again was a lot of anxiety and bewilderment. Uh, they're going to live 10 years longer, but in a digital society, it seems like power is moving 10 years younger. Mm -hmm. So, so if you're gonna live ten years longer and powers moving ten years younger, do the math. Ten plus ten equals twenty years of additional irrelevancy. <laughs> um, and I, for some people, I would hear things like, uh, "I know I'm gonna live longer, but I just don't know how I'm gonna pay for it." So sometimes it was a financial fear. In another case, it was it was just a fear of being invisible and just fear of just ha not having a purpose anymore. Um, so what that led me to is thinking, well, gosh, it's interesting. We as a society over the over the millennia, uh, millennia have actually created almost rites of passage or celebrations or rituals that help people to understand a transitional time of their life. We do this in puberty with things like with uh, bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, quinceañeras. We do it from adolescence to adulthood with a commencement ceremony, commencing adulthood, graduating from childhood. Um, you get married when you're you're gonna have a wedding. You're going to actually give birth, you have a baby shower, uh, you're going to die, you have a funeral, but between baby shower and funeral, nada, nothing. And it's partly because, you know, longevity in the U.S. was 47 years old in the year 1900, and it grew to, to 77 years old by the year 2000. So when you add 30 years of longevity in one century, new periods of life emerge. And one of those was this idea of midlife. And by 1965, we had a term called midlife crisis. But now, 54 years later, we've done very little to uh, create rite of passage or celebration around what is what are the transitions that happen in midlife, and whether they're menopause or changing careers or getting divorced or having your parents die or empty nest syndrome or having a health diagnosis that comes out of the blue. Um, you know, there's a lot that happens, 
And it's not always negative either. Um, there's some positives, although most of the ones I just said were generally not the, not, not the easiest ones. Um, but the thing that's interesting is that we don't really have a way, a social crucible that helps people come together and share best practices, so to speak, uh, excuse the, the business jargon, but share best practices about how they get through that period. And so um, we created the Modern Elder Academy on a three-acre campus uh, in Baja, California, Sur, one hour north of Cabo San Lucas. Uh, so it's southern, uh, the southern part of the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. Uh, it's a Sunday to Sunday program. Uh, we have had over 400 grads now go through the program uh, from 16 different countries. Average age is 52. Uh, the reality is it's interesting is we've had people from as young as 30 and as old as 78. Uh, but about 80% of the people fit between 45 and 65. Uh, and uh, the, some of the key things people learn from this is how do you repurpose yourself in the second half of your life. Let me use an example. I'm 58 now. Um, and if I go to online longevity sites, they tend to tell me that I'm going to live till about age 98. So if you do the math and you, and you start counting at age 18 when I became an adult, I'm exactly at halftime. Yeah. So 18 to 98, halftime is 58. Now, if I realize that half of my adulthood is still ahead of me, I might start taking up surfing as i did recently or learning spanish as i did recently which is probably a wise idea if i live in mexico um and there are you're open to maybe being liminal to actually being liminal is to be in between two states it's in being in a transitional state generally speaking when we get to be an adult we don't want to be liminal we we think we're supposed to know it all and then we create what's called a fixed mindset which then means we create a small sandbox to play in and then we wonder why we're, we, we get bored with time um so long story short is part of what we help people to do is create a growth mindset shift their mindset around what's next for them in their lives how can you uh, mine your mastery and your wisdom and repurpose it elsewhere and how can you actually look at aging as a period of life to look forward to as opposed to something you're scared of I love it. Um, and again, just speaking to the power of what sounds like what you're doing is really helping people reframe the stories that they're telling themselves and stepping into possibilities instead of being attached to preconceived ideas uh, or, or expectations for the future about what it means to be in this, in this period of, of life. Um, so core principles, first practices, um, you know, it sounds like helping people frame this period of, of life that they're entering is is an important part of it. Um, are there any other kind of uh, first principles or are there well tools or, or practices that you're doing at the at the academy that are helping people? There's all kinds of them, but I think if, if I were to just sort of say, outline one in particular, um, there's a, a somewhat famous uh, TED talk by Dan Gilbert. And um, his, in this particular uh, TED Talk, he talks about the fact that they'd studied uh, age groups, uh, pretty much all age groups. And what he found was across every single age group that people vastly underestimated how much change would happen in their life in the next 10 years. Um, and this was not just young, there's not just old people, there's older people, this is also young people. And what I think the key message there is that life is liminal. And liminal is sort of like the caterpillar to butterfly journey. In between, 
the caterpillar or the butterfly is is the chrysalis or the cocoon. And that's gooey. And that's sometimes not, not all that pretty. And that liminal period is the transition period in, from one thing to the other. And life is like that way. And yet somehow we learned at a young age that maybe when we became adults, you just sort of are on this straight and narrow path and everything's predictable. And you feel like you're a veteran at everything you're doing. And that's just BS. <laughs> if it is true that you that's the life you are living, you are living a very narrow life. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that to like, you know, wag my finger at you. I'm saying that actually to say, you must come and join us and actually get liminal, which means that you're going to actually occasionally feel awkward and feel a little bit confused. Um, but we use a lot of different, um, everything from Carol Dweck's work on mindset to Mahali Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow in terms of what, what gets you into a state of flow. And, and we also look very closely at the, the adult brain. We're very clear that as you get older, your recall memory-wise is not as good and you're not as fast. But the thing that a lot of people don't know about our brains is that actually as we age, the brain shrinks slightly. Um, we do more left brain, right brain tango, which means that we actually are able to drive over our whole brain. And the, the positive effect of that is we are able to connect the dots from logical to lyrical. So the whole element of holistic thinking, systemic thinking, and being able to um, synthetically uh, come up with solutions that are using both left brain and right brain is part of what's beautiful. And that is part of the reason I think I succeeded at Airbnb, because often I needed to be sitting in a room with both the creative designers and the engineers with their logical thinking and try to be a bridge between them. Uh, and so, you know, when I ask people at, in their mid fifties, do you make better decisions now or, or back when you were 25, almost universally, they say, I make better decisions now. And then why is, do we as a society think that these young tech companies should be full of people at age 25 running them without having a few people who are a little bit older who can help support them. But this is not the traditional elder of the past where we're just here, you know, for you to venerate us. And, you know, this is not about being revered. It's about, it's not reverence, it's relevance. And in order to be relevant, you better be as curious as you are wise. And I believe that modern elders are that that combination of the intern and the mentor both. So I just want to repeat what you just said about being as curious as you are wise. I think that's a, a brilliant insight. I'd like to ask a couple of questions that are, um, are just maybe part more of your origin story uh, and to, to just pull out some, some insights about um, how creativity might um, inspire your process and, and the work that you're doing and also maybe speak a little bit to something you mentioned earlier um, in terms of purpose and passion. What was the the first work that you ever did that you were paid for? <laughs> Working at McDonald's. Oh my God, the the the, uh, the fries and shake station. Oh, I hated that. <laughs> I mean, it was basically it was a robotic job, and right. uh, my boss, his name was Mac. <laughs> my boss was Mac at McDonald's, and he just didn't give a damn what any of his employees cared about. Mm. You know, they just and. You know, so he it was like a revolving door of people who worked there because nobody nobody enjoyed it. So, so it sounds like that. I mean, it sounds like you had one of those learning from a negative archetype type of experiences. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I said like I, this is not how this is not the kind of job I want to have someday. So yes, I better continue with my education. 
Well, and between that and um, starting your hotel business, um, did you find, I'm just curious because this is my experience and I'm always curious about how other people get to where they're at. Did you find that jobs that you had along the way, a lot of it was learning all the things that you would never want to do again? Or did you have success, you know, or find, find something that you were passionate about earlier on? I mean, I was lucky. I, um, I went to work, I went straight from undergrad into business school. I went to work for Morgan Stanley between my first and second year of business school. Um, I did very well, but I didn't want to work in an institutional environment. So I went for, to, to work for a real estate developer out of business school for $24,000 a year out of Stanford Business School. Wow. Now, you know, the average in my class was 80,000 a year. At that time, this was a long time ago, this is 35 years ago, but still $24,000 a year was nothing. But I wanted, I really thought I could learn a lot from this entrepreneur real estate developer, and I did. Learned a lot of good things, a lot of bad things, and ultimately I, I was able to start my own company. And when I started my company, Joie de Vivre, I studied Southwest Airlines. And they were gonna be my role model in terms of how do you create a positive culture uh, in the sort of travel slash hospitality business. And um, I got to, you know, spend a lot of time learning how they did that. And th- they became a positive role model for my company. Interesting. I, well, one of the other questions I wanted to ask was about teachers. And sometimes mm-hmm. teachers are people and sometimes teachers are experiences. What was the the most impactful teacher that you had, either by experience or by person? Uh, the, Herb Kelleher was the founding CEO of Air, uh, Airbnb, of Southwest Airlines. 37 years was the CEO, and he just passed away a few months ago. Um, I wrote him. Back in the old days, as we know, mm-hmm. we wrote letters to each other. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any other way to ca- connect with each other other than using the phone. But trying to call him, I never got through to him. So I just wrote him this letter to Dallas, Texas, where Southwest was headquartered. And pretty much just said, listen, I'm a young entrepreneur starting a boutique hotel company. Ultimately, the company grew to 52 boutique hotels. But at that time, I just had, uh, I think, three hotels. Um, And I wrote him and asked him a bunch of questions around culture. And three weeks later, I got a letter back from him. And over the course of the next few years, um, he became my mentor uh, from afar. I never met him, never got to meet the guy. And actually never never even did a phone call with him. I wanted to, he was just, he, he wouldn't do a phone call, hmm. but I did have him write me a series of responses to, to letters uh, that I would write him. Um, unfortunately, I've lost all of them. This is the part that's just <laughs> tragic. I have a half dozen letters from him, pretty detailed, and they were, they were in a box that had a lot of notes associated with one of my books. And one day that box ended up out in the trash um, uh, and it wasn't meant to be there. So, so it's all memory at this point in terms of what I remember from that experience, but it was a be- he was, he was quite um, open-minded, open-hearted in terms of what he shared with me. And then I'd say if I were to summarize all that, it would be like um, the customer comes second. Uh, when you're in the service business, the employee comes first. And, and if you have any other illusion uh, that somehow creating a bad work culture is going to create a great customer customer experience that just doesn't that's just not that's not sustainable long term oh what a great lesson um so as you have grown into two very successful different um sort of entrepreneurial endeavors i'm just curious about as you 
began to develop these ventures, did, did you have a definition or a description of what success was going to be? Or, you know, was there a specific um, vision of success that you were working towards? You know, I didn't, I, it, interestingly, I never really cared about the money. And I, that's something that sometimes people say, but you sort of wonder, is that really true? But, you know, I took a job out of, call, out of business school for $24,000 a year. So money was not a big thought for me. It, you know, it didn't come from a wealthy family. It came from a solid middle-class family. So I, I didn't, I was not in a position where I um, was nervous about money, but I was also not in a position where it had, I'd seen what it is like to have a lot of it. The thing that actually was more interesting to me was to build a reputation for the organization and for me as a leader. And um, that was more important to me. Having our company make the the lists of the best companies to work for was, was the kind of thing that really struck me. Um, having an article written about us that's quite positive about our, our, our company culture, that was really important to me. Um, winning awards for customer satisfaction, that was really important. Um, and I very much did rely upon, in the, especially in the first 10 to 15 years of running that company, on external reinforcements as opposed to my own, my own gut of like, okay, you know, I feel, I feel the sense of accomplishments, accomplishment internally. I definitely looked for the external uh, uh, indicators of validation. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, I've gotten a little bit better at that. I still, I still you know, appreciate external validation like anybody. Um, and probably it's less important to me today because I, I realize how fleeting it can be um, and, and how fleeting a reputation can be. I mean, if you don't, you know, I, I, I call your reputation. Reputation is what, what the cosmic bellhop delivers somewhere before you even arrive. Um, it's amazing what a reputation can do or not do for you. Um, and it's amazing how quickly you can actually ruin a reputation, just like you can ruin a company culture by making a few bad moves. So. Um, you know, reputation, culture, these kind of intangibles that to me define the difference between a good business and a spectacular business um, are the kinds of things you 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 want to hold on to. And that's, again, that's probably the reason I studied Southwest because to me, they had some intangible uh, things that I'd learned from them. I ended up writing a lot about this in my book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. Um, and um, yeah. So if people want to read more about that, that's probably the best book. That one or my first book I wrote um, called The Rebel Rules, The Rebel Rules, Daring to Be Yourself in Business. Yeah, well, and it sounds to me like you're you're all you and your your role model, um, Southwest Airlines, you know, went into ventures with a a great degree uh, of intention and integrity. So it seems like the work itself must have been rewarding. I think so. I mean, I, I, I always am cautious about the companies that sort of say they're all about integrity because it's, it's sort of like so many things. It's, it, it's best pointed out by others, not by yourself. Um, let's, let's look at the word integrity for a moment, too. Integrity is, is a, a root of the idea of integrate or integral, or it's almost the idea of uh, everything is connected. So integrity speaks to the idea that you know your words and your actions are in line with each other so a lot of times people think about integrity as almost like having to be mother Teresa and be perfect it isn't about being perfect and it's not about necessarily being saintly or or doing things that allow you know make you look like you're walking on water no more than anything to me integrity is just having um, consistency 
in, in actions and words uh, and speaking to the idea that everything seems to actually have an integrated uh, component to it. And so it's not as high of a standard as some people think, um, nor is it as something that's all about ethics. And I mean, ethics are different than integrity. I think ethics are exceptionally important too. But to me, integrity speaks to the idea of being integral. Um, and ethics, ethics is a different thing because I think ethics are sort of circumstantial and uh, cultural in terms of like, uh, you know, it depends on what, what are the ethics of in this culture versus that culture. It varies. But integrity actually sort of like saying, hey, no, are you, are, are you at one with yourself uh, as a person or as an organization? Uh, regardless of the ethics or cultural overlay um, that, of where you where you're located, I love it. Yeah, I think of integrity as being the promises that you're making, and sometimes you can't keep those promises because of external factors, but you still have to stand up and own your responsibility within those things. Um, but they're the things that you're committing to, and um, the promises that you make. Well, we're we're quickly approaching the end of our half hour. It went by really, really fast. I do have, I always have a final question for my guests, but somebody that you know um, said that I should ask you this question first. <laughs> and that question is, how much guacamole is too much guacamole? The answer is there's no such thing as too much guacamole. <laughs> okay. And, and I love the fact that avocados are, you know, being more and more proven to be a, a, a relatively healthy thing to be eating. Um, because I live in Mexico a lot of the time at the Modern Elder Academy, and we have a lot of avocados. Yeah. So the very last question I'd like to ask, Chip, and really appreciate your time and, and all the wisdom that you've bestowed upon us today and, and the great insights into your career and the things that we can take away. If you had just one tip or piece of advice to give listeners that would help them fly higher in an endeavor that they're seeking to make a difference with, what would that be? I think the it would be to su surround yourself with people who are are going to actually help you get there. I mean, you, you don't have to do this by yourself. Um, think of creating a little board of advisors, but make sure that they're they're not redundant to each other. That they're, each one of them has something that they're bringing to the table that'll allows you to get better at what you do, uh, and um, don't take it so personally. And don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Chip and I really appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention. And we hope that today's broadcast motivates you to lean into an endeavor that matters with greater curiosity and courage. You can learn more about Chip Conley at chipconley.com. Is that correct, Chip? Yes. Yep. And, of course, it's always great to see you at becreativeonpurpose.com. Now, go out and make a difference and keep flying higher. Chip Conley, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Scott. It's been great.